great. Well, it is great to be back up here with you. It has been a while, and I'm excited as we continue our series this morning in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Today's sermon is entitled, Rise Up and Rebuild. Rise Up and Rebuild. Well, on August 29th of this year, marked the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina's really devastating effects on New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. In case your memory of those events were a little dimmed, we were reminded afresh, weren't we, about two weeks ago, when those images of the broken levee and the flooded streets, the water-saturated New Orleans, flooded into our TV sets and into our memories once again. I think we all remember, don't we, the aerial footage five years ago of those flooded homes and streets. People perched and stranded upon the rooftops. People stuffed into the leaking New Orleans Superdome with nothing but the clothes on the very back. Devastation, violence, chaos, confusion, hopelessness, and many questions, yet few answers. But of all the questions that were being asked in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, two questions lingered in the mind of many. Number one, can this city ever be rebuilt? And number two, should this city ever be rebuilt? Given its history, given its location, given its broken down levees. Perhaps you've asked those very same questions regarding your marriage, regarding your life, regarding your relationships. Can my life, can my marriage, can my children, can this relationship be restored? Or should it even be restored? Will God redeem the years that I've wasted educationally, vocationally, relationally, those years where I have sown to the flesh and courted the world? Perhaps you've asked those same questions of the society and the world around you. In our culture of abortion and euthanasia, can God, can the protective walls of sexual purity and sanctity of life be rebuilt? Can marriage as a sacred union and covenant between one man and one woman for life be restored? My friends, if you are in doubt this morning, I believe the answer is yes as we look to the book of Nehemiah. God is in the business of rebuilding broken walls and lives. It can be done, and it should be done. And God will grant us success, starting with our lives, starting with the church. The church, let us rise up and let us rebuild. See, I believe God this morning has put this very narrative in Nehemiah that we're about to read to strengthen our hand to do just that. So let us read this morning. Let's open up to Nehemiah, starting with chapter 2, 
and I'll be reading from verse 9 through verse 20. We're going to read about the good hand that was upon Nehemiah, as we studied last week, now as he comes back or comes to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild. Starting at verse 9. Nehemiah speaking. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. And the official did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the land of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Catch that last verse, church. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Those are the words of Nehemiah. Those are the same words of the people of Jerusalem back in verse 18. Let us rise up and build. May those be our words this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I do ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would equip us through your living and active word. Lord, I thank you for preserving this story, this book, for us today, your inspired word, For I believe it is for us today, and it's for such a time as this. So, Lord, we receive your word this morning. Speak a word of God. Build up your church, we pray. Amen. Amen. Rise up and rebuild. Let's start with the first question. What are we rebuilding? Well, for those living in Jerusalem... 
This rebuilding project meant rebuilding the walls and thus the city of Jerusalem that had lain in rubble for 150 years. Thanks to Hurricane Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The fact that the walls had been demolished meant that the Jews there in the city were unable to protect themselves from their enemies, unable to rebuild their city. But you see, it was more than that. The burned gates and the ruined walls were also a symbol of shame and ultimately of judgment. We read in the appeal from Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Why? Look at the reason why. That we may no longer suffer derision. Not only did these broken walls bring reproach to the people of Jerusalem. Oh, more than that. It ultimately brought brought disrepute to the God whom they worshipped. Their covenant-keeping God. You see, to rebuild the walls was not just a preventative measure like putting up hurricane shutters when Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Wilma came our way. It was more than that. To rebuild the walls was a statement of faithfulness about the God whom they served. About the faithfulness of God to subdue and to bless the nations through his people. That was not going to happen, was it? As long as the walls were in ruin as long as their homes and the gates were burned and the temple lay in ruin. Well, how about for us this morning? We as New Covenant believers, we as Christians, how do we read this this morning? And I want to equip you here so we know how to apply this narrative to our lives today. Because we too are called to rebuild. As we alluded to in the introduction in the last several weeks, our rebuilding is a spiritual rebuilding. God is not calling us to rebuild physical walls, but to rebuild lives that gives testimony to God's saving grace, his saving work in our lives. Friends, this is the work of the church. To rebuild lives that have been transformed by the gospel. To build lives that are distinguished from the world around us. To build lives that are holy, that are salt and light, that are separate from the ways of the world, thus giving testimony and glory to God. But you know what? To rebuild, we must first rise up. You know what? From Nehemiah, that meant rising up to opposition, even anticipating it. For those who governed, it meant rising up to the immense challenge of the work before them. Church, please catch this. Just because God's good hand, his gracious hand, is upon you, just because you might be resolved to do the good work, does not mean that everyone will see it as good. Just because it is the good work doesn't mean it will be easy work. And that leads us to scene one of our narrative this morning. As Al preached last Sunday, Nehemiah, in the preceding verses, has not just received permission from the king to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. He has received the president's jet, the black suburbans, the secret service. 
He's going back to Jerusalem with a blank check from FEMA in his hand, ready to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. No wonder Nehemiah could say in verse 8, the good hand of my God is upon me. But let us read again verse 9 and 10. So then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But verse 10, but when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Nehemiah learns very quickly, doesn't he? That God's good hand doesn't mean smooth sailing. Not everyone will share his concern for the welfare of God's people. You see, to rise up and to rebuild is to face and even to expect opposition. A theme that we're going to see throughout this book of Nehemiah. That opposition will certainly come from the outside of the community of believers. But perhaps it may come from the inside as well, or at least those who profess to be from within. Let's look first in your notes from the outside. What are we to expect? Well, in this first scene, we meet Sambalat and Tobiah. Who are these guys? Well, Sambalat is mentioned 10 times in this book. Tobiah is mentioned 14 times by my count. Sambalat was either the governor or to be governor of the neighbors to the north of Jerusalem. He was the governor, most likely, of Samaria. Tobiah was either his servant or a ruler or official from Ammon to the east of Jerusalem. And they were perpetual pests to Nehemiah throughout the book, seeking to undermine this rebuilding, even seeking to infiltrate the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. Perhaps you're here this morning, and frankly, you are a little surprised, perhaps even dismayed, at how difficult the Christian life can seem. Sometimes you feel opposed at every turn. You know, all this talk about building lives sounded so redemptive. All this talk about building community, so exciting. All this talk about building the church, so noble. So brimming with zeal, you joined Palm Vista as a member. And based on your newfound convictions, or so you thought, you quit your old job so you could be here on a Sunday morning. You altered your schedule and changed jobs so you could be here and join with us in home group on a Wednesday night. And now, you're making less money. Or maybe you're making no money at all because you don't even have a job right now and you are unemployed. Bankruptcy threatens. Or maybe you do have a job. You know, your boss just delights in testing your faith. Your boss, he or she knows just how to tweak you as a Christian. Maybe you're mocked at work. Maybe you're mocked at school. Maybe it's not just because of what you believe, but it's because of how you spend your time with the church because you care for the welfare of the people in your church. Sambalots seem to surround you wherever you go. You know what? God's good hand 
It doesn't seem quite so good anymore. Church, welcome to a Genesis 3 world. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent, that is the devil, saying these words in Genesis 3, verse 15. God speaking, I will put enmity between you, that's the devil, and the woman, that's Eve, between your offspring, that of the devil, and her offspring, that of Eve. He, that's Eve's offspring, shall bruise or crush your head, Satan. This is a foreshadowing of Christ. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. In other words, there will be enmity, enmity between you and the woman between Satan's offspring and those who belong to Christ until Christ returns. There will always be conflict between the Sanballats and the Nehemiahs, between those who want to tear down and those who want to build up. See, this is the hermeneutic. This is the interpretive key to understanding the Bible's very storyline. It's how we must understand our lives as Christians today. Some will come to us as wolves, as a Sambalot. Others as wolves in sheep's clothing, the Tobias. Interesting little observation here. The name Tobiah, it's Jewish, it's Hebrew. You know what it means? Yahweh, the Lord, is good. That was his name. You see, the Tobias are those who profess to know God by name, but care nothing for his people, only their own interests. They sound something like this, as Nehemiah would have heard it. Hey, God is great. It's just his people that I can't stand. (laughs) That's what he would have heard. Have you ever met a Tobiah? Perhaps you're thinking, maybe I am a Tobiah. That's been a rough week. Ah, well, what does Nehemiah do in the face of this opposition? He waits. Verse 11. He waits three days. For some reason, Nehemiah felt it was important to insert this into his little memoir right here. What was he doing? I don't know. We don't know for sure. But you see, this, this scene right here, this little scene, acts as a pregnant pause in our narrative. See, perhaps what's most important in this verse, verse 11, is what Nehemiah is not doing. He's not striding into Jerusalem. Hey guys, the anointed one is here. Your savior has arise. Boys, saddle up the horses. It's time to rebuild. That's what probably most of us would have done, knowing the good hand of the Lord was upon us. But no, he waits. Look at verses 11 through 15. just want to tease out his phraseology here. Verse 12, Then I rose in the night, and I told no one. Verse 15, Then I went up in the night. Verse 16, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, 
and the rest who were to do the work. What was Nehemiah thinking? I think, first of all, he's making, taking pains here to make it clear that this was to be a secretive, fact-finding mission. The point is that not that he just went around and gathered information, that he did it at night so as few people as possible would know what he was doing. In other words, Nehemiah was doing his homework. He's defining the problem at hand. He's getting first-hand knowledge before he goes public with his audacious proposals to rebuild the wall before he is laughed or chased out of Jerusalem. You see, encountering opposition from without leads Nehemiah to suspect that there may be opposition from within, within his own community, to his initiative, to those who are about to do the work of rebuilding. He's aware that not everyone will automatically embrace his, plan, his plans, that there may be Tobias in his midst. When you find out later in this story, chapter 13, indeed there are. You see, so expecting leads to inspecting. Expecting opposition leads to inspecting the conditions of the walls of his people. Knowing comes before speaking and doing. Oh, isn't that good? Is that your approach to leading, to counseling others? Knowing them and knowing the situation before speaking. Oh, that's good. May I suggest that's humility? It's also wisdom as well. And it shouldn't be any different with us as we seek to rebuild spiritual lives. So yes, we may well be opposed from without, but perhaps also from within, by the very ones that we are striving to care for and to help rebuild. The opposition may even be malicious. Charles Simeon knew this well. Who was Charles Simeon? He was a pastor and professor who was born in 1759. At age 23, he was called the pastor Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. He pastored the same church for 54 years until his death. That would be like me pastoring at Palm Vista until I'm 87. Or Alpino, he's like 138, okay? <laughs> we'll see if he's listening to this recording here. Oh. You hear that, 54 years, this guy must have been the beloved pastor of Trinity Church. Well, not quite. The fact is, the members of Trinity Church wanted nothing to do with an evangelical Bible-preaching pastor. For 12 years, the congregation did not let him preach in their Sunday afternoon service. In fact, they hired an assistant to keep him out of the church. This is the pastor. So he decided, I'm going to have a Sunday evening service. So what do they do? The church wardens locked the doors. And the people from Cambridge were left on the street because they could not enter to hear their pastor. Next, the church got even more bold. They decided, hey, we're going to lock the doors on Sunday morning as well. We're going to lock 
the pews so nobody can sit in them. Suppose that there are members who are pew holders and had their place at that certain pew in that certain seat. But they locked them. They refused to let people come in and sit in the seats. And they weren't even there. So Simeon thought, hey, I'll buy some chairs. So he comes into the auditorium at Paul Vista. All these seats are roped off. I'll buy some chairs, some lawn furniture, and I'll put it in the aisles, and I'll put it in the hallways. And he bought all this at his own expense. The church warden came in, threw them all in the courtyard, <laughs> took all the chairs, threw them out on Miami Lakeway North so no one could hear him preaching. Furthermore, when he did preach, his students, his theological students, would carouse in the streets and disrupt the service, throwing stones at the church windows. For 10 years, Charles Simeon visited members door to door. 10 years before they opened up their homes to him. Can you imagine? Oh, I can't. (laughs) Paul Vista, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. This is the antithesis of what I've experienced here at Palm Vista. Oh, but it can happen. It's an extreme illustration. We will be opposed, even sometime, by those we are seeking to care for. But it's also true that our opposition may not come so much from personal hatred or even a hatred of the gospel, as was the case with perhaps those in Charles Simeon's congregation, but can also be from those who are apathetic, even those who are hopeless. See, in Nehemiah's case, the city's walls have been broken down for how many years? 150 years. The people, those who had been the first wave of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem, would have been living in this condition for nearly 100 years before Nehemiah came. You see, they were familiar. They were too familiar with the ruined condition of the walls in their city that they could envision no other way. Build a wall that is one mile in circumference, three to four feet thick, 20 feet high, No cranes, no diesel, earth-moving equipment. Use that bare hands. You've got to be kidding. This is impossible. So, some may have thought, church, if we're to rise up and rebuild, we will be opposed, even by those who would benefit in the long run. If we are to build or rebuild our marriages, you may be opposed even by your very own spouse. If we are to rebuild broken families, we may be opposed by our very own children. Whether those are your birth children, your stepchildren, your adopted children. We will be opposed by those who can envision nothing else but broken down walls. Why? Because the only thing they have ever known. No sanctified imagination. No sanctified hope. Always has been, always will be. 
but unless we become too self-righteous here. Are we not the ones as well who often do the opposing? See, when we look at this narrative, it's interesting. Maybe you're like me. It's easy to want to identify with the great leader, Nehemiah, the Christ figure, Nehemiah, in this passage. <laughs> but let's not flatter ourselves, all right? We're not Nehemiahs here. We're the people Nehemiah is attempting to mobilize. We are the people who are to do the work of rebuilding. We are the church. We're the ones who are called to do the good work that Nehemiah and the people are referring to. You see, too often we're the ones, right? That we don't like change. And we battle apathy. Too often we're the ones that become too familiar with our own sins so anesthetized to the world that we can't see any other way. We easily despair, don't we? And we can so often lose hope. We'd rather retreat than rise up and rebuild. Not, not going to do it. Too risky. Too dangerous. And so we are or become fickle and fragile. John Piper writes these piercing words. And one of the pervasive marks of our time is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened. And it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. God is calling us to rise up and to rebuild. Yes, even in the face of opposition. And that leads to the climactic scene, scene four of our narrative, verses 17 and 18, when Nehemiah finally approaches the people with his plan. The tension is, will they respond? Will they rise up? And let's look at verse 18 again. Nehemiah speaking. He says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me, And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Oh, church, let us rise up and build here at Palm Vista. Let us strengthen our hand for the good work. What is the good work? It's the work of gospel ministry. It's the work of rebuilding lives. But let us not just expect that we will be opposed. And it's all hard work. Lest we become jaded or discouraged. Let us also expect success. Success as we do the good work. Why? Because the good work is God's work. It is God's work. You see, Nehemiah knew it was good work because God's hand was at work in his life, despite his enemies, despite his opposition. In the concluding scene of this narrative, scene 5, verses really 19 and 20, we've come full circle in more ways than one. Just as the narrative began with opposition, 
So it now closes. Now with the introduction of a third enemy by the name of Geshem. Geshem may have been the most powerful of the three enemies. He was a ruler of the Arabian tribes to the east and south. So now in this text, we have an unholy triumvirate, an unholy triumvirate from the north. Sambalat from the north, Tobiah from the east, and Geshem from the south. In other words, Jerusalem is virtually now encircled by enemies. The ante has now been upped. Same enemy, same charges the enemies used years earlier as recorded in Nehemiah 4. When they say, what is the thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Ah, but Nehemiah, he doesn't take the bait, does he? He doesn't enter the fray. He knows that there is one greater than an earthly king. Verse 20. Verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This phrase we see will make us prosper. It can also be translated, he will give us success. That's the translation of the NASB version as well as the NIV. He will give us success. Don't you love it? <laughs> you might say, hey, guys, you can threaten us all you want, but you can't touch us because this is God's work and his hand is upon us. Oh, church, what Nehemiah knew, in part, we know even better now. Why? Because we live on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come, and he has conquered, and his victory is a guarantee of our success in this rebuilding project. Do you have that faith this morning? This confidence as you seek to rebuild, rise up and rebuild your life, your marriage, those you're reaching out to who are hurting. See, this isn't a confidence that everything will turn out just as you envisioned in life, just as you thought of your relationship would. It's not, it's not a confidence that the world will even call you a, a success. It's not a confidence that the world will champion your cause. You know what it is? It's a faith that your labor is not in vain. It's faith that when Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that you believe it and you rise up and you rebuild because Christ has secured our success in this endeavor. Oh, please hear the glorious words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, verse 15. This wonderful gospel passage here, he concludes with these words. This is Christ speaking. He says, he, this is Paul speaking of Christ. He, that is Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How did Christ do this? At the cross. You see, at the cross marks the decisive defeat of all demonic powers. Every Sambalat, every Tobiah, every Geshem that seeks to accuse our conscience and that 
seeks to thwart God's plan of salvation, God's reclamation plan, God's rebuilding plan. And it's through his death on the cross that Christ paid the penalty for our sins and reconciled us to the Father. Why? That we may be forgiven, that we may be made new and whole, reclaimed and rebuilt for his glory. Christ did not die in private. No, church, Christ died in public, just outside those burnt gates of Jerusalem that Nehemiah was inspecting. He publicly put all his enemies to shame at the cross, triumphing over them in his death and in his resurrection. His victory is our victory now in Christ. When Christ said, and was referred to as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 19, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We received the authority to rise up and to rebuild. Rise up and rebuild is not a pep talk. It's not just a catchy slogan. It's that which is undertaken by Christ's authority, his power, and his commission. I recently received this resume, which a brother in the church here at Enzo gave me. Here's just a sampling of this resume. My name is Jesus the Christ. Many call me Lord. I've sent you my resume because I'm seeking the top management position in your heart, i.e. master foreman for this rebuilding project. Please consider my accomplishments as set forth in my resume. Qualifications. I founded the earth and established the heavens. I formed man from the dust of the ground. I breathe into man the breath of life. I redeem man from the curse of the law and the slavery of sin. Some of my skills and work experiences include empowering the poor to be poor no more, healing the brokenhearted, and setting the captives free. Educational background, I encompass the entire breadth and length of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. I like that one. Major accomplishments. I laid down my life so that you may live. I defeated the arch enemy of God and mankind and made a show of them openly. Colossians 2.15. References. Believers and followers worldwide will testify to my divine healing, salvation, deliverance, miracles, and restoration. When you hear, rise up and rebuild, whose resume are you looking at? Looking at yours? Pretty pathetic. Looking at mine? Even more pathetic. Oh, may we look to Christ's resume. Remember Charles Simeon? I think we know what resume he was looking at. How else did he endure 54 years and remain faithful to the gospel 
And in the end, Charles Simeon rebuilt Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. He once commented to his friend, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, that's Christ, has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Church, may that be our hope as well as we rise up and rebuild right here at Palm Vista. Pricking, scratches, and all. Let's pray. The worship team can come up at this time. Dear Lord, I am so thankful that you are committed to rebuilding lives, my life, and those my friends here at Palm Vista. And Lord, we believe, believe there are many other lives who are not yet here this morning that you want to rebuild and bring into your church. So Lord, let us rise up with a holy faith and confidence that, Lord, you are at work. Oh yes, that we can expect to be opposed, but also that we can expect success in this endeavor. So Lord, build our faith this morning. Encourage us, we pray, even now as we rise and as we sing. Amen. Amen.